Beautiful. So obviously want to talk about the uh, new music and uh, talk a little producer writing guy that you are and uh, get your opinion on a couple things. But uh, first and foremost, been blown away by the tune and an even cooler video with Intercorrupted. And uh, I don't know, it almost feels like that there's a... uh, a, a concept album brewing here. Is that what is that what's going on? Is there more than meets the eye for Intercorrupted? It's it's half concept album and half sort of like the uh, amalgamation of our past records. You know that, that there's there's a lot of challenges that we we had to acknowledge right off the bat from coming. You know we haven't been around for seven years, so having not done a record in a long time. You know, you, you want to assume that people remember the vibe and remember the band. And, you know, we obviously still have some songs that people still listen to. But, you know, I, I felt very, I don't know, I felt a, a lot of responsibility in making sure that the, uh, you know, that the audience felt familiar, like that, that he remembered us and he remembered what we did. But I also felt like modern times with COVID and politics and everything was sort of pushing you know, was pushing the writing lyrically and conceptually. So ultimately, you know, the album has a, has a theme more than a concept, but the the theme is, is mostly about like healing and sort of taking responsibility for our lives and, and hopefully, you know, being able to see the hope in the future as opposed to, you know, being constantly inundated with negativity and, and succumbing to that. I love that, and I love that that positivity. And it's funny; I've been joking on the radio about like what's in the briefcase, bro. It almost kind of felt a little uh, Pulp Fiction ish. Yeah, you know, the first of all, we ha- I had a concept for the video that would have cost probably a hundred thousand dollars to make, <laughs> so there was no way we were going to make that video. But um, but yeah, the idea of the of the briefcase is just sort of like hope and freedom, right? And I feel like a lot of what has happened in the last ten years has had the negative side effect of of casting a lot of doubt on both of those subjects right we you know we have we have so many of us are afraid to say what we really think so many of us are afraid to be positive looking forward because we're constantly told that there's sort of a, a doom and destruction future imminent you know so i think you know the album's goal is to give you the permission to not be like that you know i mean and there's some of it that's more lighthearted and there's some you know, and there's a couple of, you know, Boy Meets Girl, Girl, Screws Guy Over songs on there, too. So it's not like it's just one-sided, but I think overarching, um, overarchingly, the, the theme is to be hopeful. I love it, man, because especially in hard rock and heavy metal, and like you touched on, it can be so negative and downtrodden and doom and gloom. Like, I think it, there needs to be some some positivity and some lightheartedness, you know. I think especially in this day and age, we need that more than ever right now. Yeah, I think also, you know, and you said something that's very important to me personally, and this and this relates to my career as a producer as well, is, you know, music sort of has, especially hard rock and metal, has its, has its default emotions, you know? And I've always been a little bit more impressed by the bands that can play with those a little bit more. It's one of the reasons why I actually like Bring Me the Horizon, because I feel like Bring Me the Horizon has, you know, those songs where they're, you know, sort of walking down the I'm depressed and angsty teen road. But then there's moments where you feel like there's some more color and depth to the message that's not necessarily all doom and gloom. Um, But yeah, I, I feel strongly about trying to inspire people and possibly educate people with certain parts, you know.
I love it, man. I love it. And another great tune, uh, Jezebel. What can you tell me about that tune? And that has a little bit more of the uh, the, the storyline with that voicemail in the middle of it. So, yeah. So there's, there's a whole bunch of craziness. So basically, we have a song off of our original 2002 record called Scorn, which is with a K. And the reason why it's with a K is because Korn, the band, in, inspired the original song. <laughs> and it's about, you know, sort of having this, this girlfriend who screws you over and she doesn't love you anymore. And, and it's just sort of like this funny thing that I put on this little weird voice on and I said this stuff. And our fans remember the little speech because I would do it at the shows all the time. So when I made Jezebel, um, the first thing that I was sort of trying to do with this song was um, invoke my inner Roxanne because the police is still my favorite band. And I wanted a Roxanne type song. So, you know, Roxanne and Jezebel, they're sort of like, you know, they're sort of the same inspiration for that feeling. And, and, and the song, obviously Jezebel is sort of like about a prostitute type girl or something like that, or someone that you think is a prostitute or you're calling her a prostitute. And obviously Roxanne is about a prostitute too. So the, the, the there was a connecting rod there to some policey aspect, even though it's like super mathy and metally and crazy. Um, but yeah, you know, that, that song's really special to me because it was, you know, a little bit of that mixing of genres, right? Because it's like metally and genty and, and has like all these dark elements. And yet I'm sort of singing these pop police melodies over them with these clean guitars on top of it. And I don't know, I was very satisfied with it. So when it came to the bridge, uh, the, the middle section of the song, I, for some reason, I just without I didn't even give it that much thought. I was like, oh, I need that speech from Scorn because it's been so long and I want people to feel familiar. So I called my friend Mixie from Stitched Up Heart yeah. and I said, Mixie, will you do this little part and read it for me? And she was like, of course, anything. And I was like, cool. So most people don't even know that that's Mixie from Stitched Up Heart talking in it. But that's, um, but yeah, it was, it, was a, it was a fun thing to throw in and so many people appreciate it. Yeah, it's great and, and great to learn that that is Mixie. I love Stitched Up Heart and the music they make. They're, they're a great band and what, just put out their second, third album last year, this year, whatever yeah, year they it did. Is. Yes, they did the last record. They had that song with Sully on it. I think it was called Lost. Yeah. And then, um, yeah, I've, I've been friends with Mixie for a long time, you know, and I did the I did the album before it. I co-produced the record before this last one. Um, so, yeah, she's she's a good friend, and I and I love her, and she's great. She's awesome on Twitch. If anybody is on Twitch, you should watch her Twitch. Uh, her t- Twitch stream is amazing. You know, let's talk a little, a little bit about uh, the producing side of you and uh, – you know, an interesting question I had was, how do you know when a song is done? Is it when time runs out or is it like when you blasting out the car speakers and everything sounds right and your head banging to it? Me and Bob Marnlad, another rock producer, we have this little YouTube series on songwriting. And the first episode of the, ep- of the songwriting YouTube series is priorities. And I think that to answer your question, the question isn't knowing whether or not the song is done as much as knowing whether the priorities have been achieved. And that's sort of the, the, the way that I like to look at it because there's so many details, right? As a producer, you can say, Oh, I like this hi hat. I don't like that hi hat. I don't like the snare. I like the guitar on this. That's all stuff that I like and that certain people like and may swing the audience one way or the other. But ultimately all a song's job is to do is to connect emotionally to the listener and make them feel something that makes them want to listen more. You just want to string them along moment to moment with things that pull them emotionally and connect to them. There's many ways of doing that without good snare drums and good kick drums and without good, good 
you know, like without even a good mix. They're famous songs in history. I used to always talk to bands and I used to mention Alanis Morissette, You Ought to Know. If you actually listen to the mix on that song, it's not, it's not incredible. And it doesn't sound that great. But the song is such a hit, it doesn't matter, you know? And it's such a magnificent writing, you know, the, the writing in it is so great that it, it overwhelms any kind of production problems or mix issues or anything like that. So from where I sit, to answer your question, you know when a song is done, when you feel the emotion of it, when you feel that there's not a point in the track where you're no longer connected. If you let the connectedness be your, your driving, you know, your driving force, you'll be able to, um, I think, create better music. And I teach, you know, I try and teach that to the bands that I work with. And obviously I learned that from the other bands that I work with that are, you know, sort of evolved and on their own universe. Well, I love it, man. I appreciate all the insight, which is absolute gold because there are so many young bands that listen to this show and, and, you know, this is absolute gold for them as they're sitting at home and in their garages and trying to write and trying to take it to the next level. And speaking of writing, is it something that, that, uh, you feel, you know, you need to kind of set aside time every day and have writing time or do you wait to be inspired or talk about maybe the, the songwriting process? Is it important to write every single day? Uh, for me personally, writing is my job. So it's not a, I'm knocking on wood as I say this, but uh, I have more work than I have time for. So the cool part of my life is, is that I don't have the option to be inspired or not be inspired. I have to write because I'm working with bands all the time. I always have artists here or I'm working on finishing the songs that I've written with other artists, but there's always writing during the month. It, it, it can estimate anywhere between eight to 15 songs a month, which sounds crazy. But really, if you're in a band, if you have a band in, 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 in the studio for a week, you're going to write five or six ideas. Maybe four of them become songs, but you know, you'd multiply that times four week and you'll end up with, you know, 10 to 12 songs a month. So I'm, I'm pretty busy in that regard. But one of the things that I, I, I equate you know, music to is sports. And if you can think about a Formula One driver or a professional baseball player or a any anybody or tennis player especially is, you know, there's such a such a very narrow window for excellence in that. And the only way you can maintain that narrow window of excellence is by repetitiveness and constantly practicing and constantly training. I'm a huge Formula One fan and it's not like Lewis Hamilton can take the rest of the year off and not do his training and not do his stuff and then get back in the car and be as sharp and, and accurate as he is when he's driving all year long. So that is the practice of writing songs. When you're practicing and you're constantly doing it, it also allows you to refine your focus. So going back to what I said before, you can prioritize the right things, but if you have really, really eagle-eyed focus on the things that actually are effective and the things that aren't effective sort of become blurry, then you start to become more efficient. And efficiency in writing is, in, is incredibly important, not getting sort of enamored with your own ideas as much as being acutely aware of what's effective and what's not effective. <laughs> efficiency, I think, is the key to, to life in everything you do in life, really. If you can nail yes, efficiently. Absolutely. I heard that you're working on the new uh, Lejean solo album. What can, can you give me any insight on that? Is it going to be funky? Any covers? You singing on it? So, okay, so there's a couple of things that are sort of exciting related not only to that, but sort of like I've been lucky enough to be really busy with a lot of projects, but I have two sort of main projects that I focus on. One project is a band called Starset, okay. and that band is uh, a big part of, you know, like sort of my my creative universe includes Dustin's universe. We we meet. In fact, Dustin sings on the new, the new Raw record. Awesome. Um, and we have... You know, it, my, some of my favorite songs that I've ever worked on are Star Set songs. 
So that's one thing that I'm very focused on as a producer and a writer. I do mostly writing and some production on that. But with Lejean, it's this love affair that goes back to like 1999 (laughs) when I first heard Denial, you know, and like I've been obsessed with Seven Dots for such a long time and I've always wanted to get in the studio with those guys and I got to work with Clint a bunch of times and I got to use, uh, we did a song with him, uh, uh, Maytal was an artist that I sang for a couple years ago and we did a song together called Armalite and Clint played the, uh, the guitar on the bridge and the, and, the, and the chorus. But, you know, my connection emotionally has always been uh, with Lejean. And he's been, a, you know, a fan of Ra since 2005-ish, if, uh, second album, Duality. And we became friends and stuff. And then just sort of very organically, we started talking about working together and possibly doing something for him individually. And then we recorded a couple of songs and something happened and I got this sort of crazy inspiration from this Jacob Banks song called Chainsmoking, which we just recently covered and it's out on Spotify. If you want to look it up, it's Lejean Witherspoon and it's Chainsmoking. And what it is, is it's a Jacob Banks song, a very popular um, online sort of Spotify track. It's not really a radio song, but it's really cool. It's got this really dark bluesiness, but it's got this cool modern production to it. And something about it really screamed Lejean to me. And we started writing songs with that in mind. And ultimately, uh, now we have a whole album and we're talking about a release schedule and we're putting it all together and, and working with LJ has been a dream because he's, you know, incredibly passionate and very, very focused. And, it, you know, I mean, he's been around for so long. He's just such a pro. Some of the challenges in working with him was more of deprogramming him from all of his seven dust tendencies and having him do things that he's never done before, like singing falsetto and, and singing softer and having a little bit more bluesy sort of swag and feeling and feeling empowered and free enough to do singy stuff and not just sort of like hard rocky stuff. The album for me is very satisfying. I, I, I love listening to his voice. And yeah, and he also has a song on the next Bra record, which comes out March 19th. So him and Dustin are the only two features on the record, but it's really, really cool. Awesome, man. I cannot wait to hear it. And yeah, what a voice. And to, with you, with him, and to see where you take it, it's uh, it's going to be magic. I cannot wait. Before I get too carried away on, on the other stuff, I wanted to uh, hit you with uh, a little bit more raw talk as far as, you know, no one has a crystal ball, but assuming the world gets back to normal sooner than later, is the plan to get in a van or, or a bus and, and hit it hard with Raw, or, or are you going to more pick your spots and do more high-profile shows because producing is the priority? It's sort, of a, it's sort of a mix and match of both. I mean, we want to do, you know, we've been talking, obviously, going out with Seven Dust would be fantastic. Going out with Starset would be fantastic. So those kinds of tours, things of things that are of the right profile and that, you know, would have the right level of exposure are things that are, you know, we technically would say are no-brainers. Like, we're going to do those. Um, headlining shows might be a little bit more of a challenge um, and, and, you know, and things of that nature. But along these lines, we're actually doing a virtual concert that will stream on March 19th, the day the record comes out. I think it's going to be really cool. I have a relationship. I, I moved to Fort Wayne, Indiana, uh, right when COVID hit, and uh, Sweetwater Sound, which is a huge music online retailer, has a, an incredible facility, and we did our, we, you know, we're working on the virtual concert there. It's going to be pretty, pretty amazing. The, the level of production is pretty incredible. Um, so, I would say if you've never seen the band live, that's going to be a good way to, to pop your cherry is to March 19th can't get a ticket for the uh for the virtual concert it's gonna be really good awesome you want to give out the plugs is it veeps is it nugs which one are you using 
You know, I don't actually know the streaming service. It's a new, it's a newer one based on uh, these guys that used to do some big, they're like heavy hitter UTA managers. They have their own streaming platform now. But the easiest way for, for you to get it is just to go to robann.net. We have all the links up there. Beautiful. And Sahaj, I appreciate all the time, man. I, I, I was just, I got to say, blown, absolutely blown away by the Outfield uh, Your Love cover. That was just straight ridiculous. I grabbed my wife and was playing it for her. And <laughs> it's funny because she I caught her watching the American Idol and The Voice and all that. And I was like, here's some real singing, honey. Well, what's funny with that was I was at Lejean's house in Kansas and the guy died, you know, the singer for the for the outfield. And, and, and that's sort of my go-to karaoke song. And I just, I don't know, I just felt sort of emotionally like, I was like, oh man, I didn't even know the guy was that old or that he wasn't healthy and, and he passed away. And I was like, man, I'm going to, I'm just going to put up my phone and sing this song. And, you know, I, I, I thought it sounded pretty good. So I was like, all right, I'll post it. Man, you knocked it out the box. Some of those notes were just ridiculous, bro. Do you do you think those shows have done more good than bad, or where do you come down on those type of shows? Those uh, idol, the voice, that stuff. Do you think it's it's creating musicians, or it's doing more harm than good? Well, I mean, I think you can look at the trajectory of the shows, right? I think it's pretty easy to to see where the value of these shows are. I think in the beginning, you had Kelly Clarkson, Chris Daughtry, a couple of other people, but immediately they realized that from a television show standpoint, the money was in the judges, and the judges were far more interesting and compelling to the watcher, to the to the you know to the audience than the actual contestants. And one of the things that I've always not liked about you know, these competitions is, is that it very rarely shows the dark side of competitive musicianship, you know, yeah. like the idea of, of guys competing, you know, when you go out and try and get a record deal, it's not pretty. It's not a pretty situation. People are not nice. People are genuinely from a, you know, most of the time, no one's looking for a reason to sign a band. They're always looking for a reason not to. You know, it, when you get into that competitive thing and sort of the backstabbing and the climbing and the, and the who gets hurt in order to, that stuff doesn't show up on American Idol. And I sort of wish it did. I sort of wish there was more of a, you know, I, I wish somebody would combine the, the, the TV show Survivor and American <laughs> Idol. And then I'd be like, okay, now I want to see it. You know, now I want to see the mental games because you can, you, you, there are many people who are successful in music business because they play the game better than everyone else doesn't mean they're the best best artist you know and that's that's part of reality to me absolutely and i appreciate all the time just the last couple of things i got to hit you with and it kind of cleanse the palate especially after that you being uh, originally an angelino for a long time it must have been a dream come true to get to work with the legendary motley crew talk about that experience it's just going back a couple of years now but i met nikki six and my buddy bob marlette's house because Bob and John Five are really, really good friends, and Nikki and John Five are also really good friends. Right. So they brought me in, and it was roughly around winter, I'm going to say 2017, winterish, and they brought me in to help write some melodies for some stuff that they were sort of messing around with. Nothing really came of it, but I spent the day with Nikki and got along with them, and we enjoyed talking, and, and that was cool. Never heard from him again. Six months later, I get a random text message from him saying, hey, are you available tomorrow? I need to talk to you about something. And I'm like, sure. So he explains to me that, you know, they have the movie The Dirt coming out. They need a song. And so he's like, we have a few ideas. We're going to come over. You know, I want to come over to your house and work on melodies and lyrics and see what we can come up with. And I'm like, okay, great. So he comes over. The funny part of this story is, is he comes to my house for the first time and we're sitting there and he starts rattling off all these Motley Crue songs. He says, you know that part in, in Saints of Los Angeles when this, da, da, da. And I'm like, my brain is like freezing because I'm looking at him. I'm like, hey, Nikki Six is in my house. And he doesn't know I'm not a Motley Crue fan. Oh. So I had to basically say to him, I said, look, I had to stop him where he was. And I said, okay, look, 
when I was a kid, the guys that liked Metallica and Slayer didn't hang out with the guys that liked Motley Crue and Guns N' Roses. They were two different crews when I was a kid. So I was a Metallica guy, and I never really listened. You know, I knew Girls, 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 Home Sweet Home, and Dr. Feelgood. Those were my three Motley Crue songs that I knew. I probably Shout Out the Devil, too. Those were four songs I knew. I really didn't know anything else. I didn't even know Kickstart My Heart. He's sort of taken aback by it a little bit, but it made it a lot easier to work with him because he knew I wasn't up his bus the whole time. So we were sort of like, we just became friends and we started chatting and he was at my house for like three or four months straight. And we ended up doing four songs instead of two, instead of one rather. And I ended up singing on all of those. So when you're hearing, if you listen to The Dirt, every voice that is not Vince Neil, and he's only singing the lead, but every voice that's not Vince Neil is me. Wow. That is awesome, man. And and a great story, especially you could kind of cut right to it with you not being a fan. That's that's amazing. But you touched on one thing that was going to be my next question, my, my final question for you. I start my show with a little old school radio station feature called Mandatory Metallica, which I'm going to make you a part of. Talk to me about discovering Metallica. Do you remember discovering Metallica and take me through your love and obsession with Metallica and even pick a song for us to play on mandatory Metallica. I pat myself on the back for being very early on three bands. So one band I was super duper early on was a band called the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Nobody knew who these dudes were. They had just done this crazy record with George Clinton and nobody in my neighborhood in Queens, New York knew who the Red Hot Chili Peppers were. But I was for some weird reason obsessed with this George Clinton record. And it was really, really cool. And then of course they became a massive band. And then there was this guy that I went to high school with, this guy named TJ, who was a guitar player. And we rode the subway home from high school because I went to LaGuardia High School in Manhattan and I lived in Queens. So he gave me a tape one time, and on one side, it was Steve Vai's Flexible, which was this instrumental record that I loved. And on the other side was this record called The Warning by a band called Queensryche. And I had no idea that they weren't from Queens. I thought they were from (laughs) Queens because I lived in Queens, so I thought they were Queensryche. But the same guy, and we're talking 1984 here, this same dude gave me another tape. And on that tape, it had Ingve Momstein's Rising Force, and on the other side was Kill 'em All. And when I heard Kill 'em All, I flipped. Four Horsemen drove me absolutely bananas. So I went to my record store, and this is early. This is the, that record brand new, and I, I had to order it because they didn't have it there. So I ordered it, and I literally waited for the store to open like five days later to get my pick, my vinyl of Kill 'em All. And I played that record a bazillion times, scratched it to death, obviously <laughs> bought it again on cassette and had it when Ride the Lightning came out. There's two songs that sort of like changed my trajectory in the universe. The first one is Four Horsemen. And then the second one, believe it or not, was Creeping Death. And Creeping Death for me, you can possibly say that it even planted the raw seed because I was enamored with the whole Pharaoh Egypt part of Creeping Death. Wow. And the and the analogy of, you know, the whole curse on the firstborn son and the whole thing. Like, I was completely enamored with the romanticism of Creeping Death. Like, Creeping Death was like that, that song that just made me go bananas and I listened to a thousand times. After that, I mean, it, then it just became sort of like... You know, by the time Master of Puppets came out, I was pretty freaked out by the song Damage Incorporated from a guitar standpoint. That riff in the middle of the bridge is still to this day one of the hardest things for anybody to play the same way James plays it. You know, that riff is 
just pure thrash genius perfection. It doesn't get any better than that for me. So, and then in what a time and justice for all came out. I mean, I was already, I was already down picking exclusively. I was only, I was trying to learn, you know, I was basically copying everything I could from the way that James played, the way James stood on stage, the way James sounded, James's metal voice. I'm in fact, when I started working for the WWE, which I did a bunch of stuff for them, um, the only rock voice, like the only butt rock voice I have is Hatfield. I don't really have any other way of sounding gnarly and I do it very rarely. <laughs> hey, you know, you brought up uh, injustice. I have to ask you being the producer guy, what, what, where do you come down on the lack of bass on that album? Are you with it or you think they need to turn up the bass in the mix? For me, again, remember, remember I was talking about priorities. And, and you know, if, if James and Lars are the soul of that band, and that's all you hear, and it still sounds amazing, and it still sounds like a train on fire about to burst through a city, I don't care if there's bass or not. I never listened to that record and was like, what is, I did listen to that record and be like, man, that is the weirdest sounding snare I've ever heard. But <laughs> I never listened to that record and said to myself, well, if the bass was louder, it'd be so much better. You know, I never thought that. I mean, obviously I knew it wasn't there, but I just didn't care. You can't bring up snare sound and then not talk St. Anger, bro. See, but that's a different... So my thing on St. Anger is I'm going to be in the minority on this one. I thought there were really good songs on St. Anger. I thought they didn't know how to put them together as songs. I think they put them together as sort of a series of ideas that were disjointed. And when you're talking about this, the trashy snare, yeah, I mean, you know, I think that was when you go from an album, you know, on, on Justice for All, the snare sounds like a piece of paper being ripped. It's so dry. It's so thin. It's so like has no sustain. Then you go to the Black Album. The Black album has these monstrous attacks like the kick and the snare are so incredibly piercingly hard and punchy i just think they were just trying to figure out something they hadn't done that whole album is an experiment on stuff they hadn't done and i think emotionally they just didn't have any guidance you know like i think bob rock was burnt on the project i think everybody involved was just burnt and it's easy to sort of point the finger and say oh man you guys really screwed up but it's hard to reinvent yourself especially with a band like that that it's you know they don't do they they're not adventurous with tuning that much. It's like, there's a lot of stuff that, that, that Metallica leaves on the table in terms of options that they don't do, but they, they keep it pure. And, and you know, you got to give them the credit for being pure. Absolutely. You know, warts and all, like the, you know, the good and the bad, like you, sports analogy, no one bats a thousand, you know what I mean? Like no one hits a home run every at bat, you know, at least they're going for it. Like you said, trying different things. Yeah. And of course, it, as with anybody, right, with any, you know, with, whether it's Mike Tyson, whether it's anybody at all, you get to a point where you might have too much money. Your need to be great might be less than it was. <laughs> you know, in 1989, when, when Justice was coming out, they were they had chips on their shoulders and they were going to prove a point. And they had to make everybody understand that even though Cliff died, the band was still going to be the band. And there's so much to prove at that point. But by the time you get to St. Anger, we're, we're, they had already climbed the precipice. You know, there was nothing to there was nothing left to achieve for them. So it, you can get misguided very easily when you're already sort of at the point of no return. Dude, I love it. Sahaj, this has been a, a dream come true to get to rap with you for a few. Dude, you absolutely rock. Thank you so much for checking out the entire interview. Now just hit subscribe. Subscribe to the podcast, Radioactive Mike Z. My interviews in their entirety, available on all the major platforms. Tune in, Stitcher, iTunes, SoundCloud, whatever you're listening to right now. Just hit the subscribe button. Make sure to give me a follow on the socials as well. I'll follow you back at MikeZ967. And bro, don't miss the radio show. Now 10 p.m. 
a.m. to midnight on 96.7 KCAL Rocks in the Southern California Inland Empire area, Riverside, San Bernardino County. Always streaming on live at kcalfm.com. You, my friend, absolutely rock.